0: what are we doing and why, and the second is to make the big first point that kind of propels us into everything we'll be learning to, together. I've been praying that God would give you a fervent love for and a very, very deep hope in and a happy submission to the, the words of Scripture and the truth that they contain. Um, so let's, let's work through the first part of this just Give me a few minutes to do this. This is done in love for you, people who will watch and listen during the week who are not here to get situated to what we're going to do together. All right, so for this next season, the spring is part one, and then the summer is part two, we're going to be preaching on the doctrine of man. Biblical language here, theological language, the doctrine of man. Okay, what in the world is that? By the doctrine of man, we mean everything that Scripture teaches us to be true about who we are as human beings, as men or as women, created in the image of God, fallen badly into sin, but then magnificently redeemed. So the doctrine of man addresses questions of human identity. It's about our dignity and our worth. It's about our equality and our distinction. And so it's about our sexuality. It's about our masculinity and our femininity. It's also about our sinfulness and our mortality. I could keep going. You get the point. What does God's Word say it means for us to be human? That's the doctrine of man. Okay, why would we do this together now? We try not to be willy nilly in what we preach, but to prayerfully hear the Spirit and pay attention to your lives and our context in saying, what do we preach on together next? All right, so the Lord has seen fit for us to be a gospel believing and truth loving and holiness pursuing church family in a time and a place that is either, you could characterize it as very confused about or adamantly rebellious against the biblical doctrine of man. But you don't need me to tell you that. Over the last year or two, easily the most common, uh, most intense theological questions that we have received from you in conversation have been around the doctrine of man who are we what does it mean to be human so by that i mean questions like these and let me run you through six literal questions and it'll give you the feel for it so one pastor matt i have a child at my parent i have a parent at my child's school who is insisting that everyone at the school pretend that they're daughter is a boy and not a girl you feel that question what do i do how do i love my child how do i love this family in that situation is this a really good thing that the parent is doing is this a morally evil thing that the parent is doing is our biology the sex that we have as male or female really important or actually irrelevant That's a doctrine of man question, and you've been asking it. Okay, how about this one? And this is very emotional and personal, but we'll get into that. Why this is going to be a hard series. Pastor Matt, my father, and I love him. He's very, very old. He's very, very ill. And it's a very painful illness, and it's a very costly illness. Wouldn't the most loving thing to be, to, to do, be to end his life if he's okay with it? And what's the underlying question? What is human dignity? What's the value of a human life? See, that's a doctrine of man issue that you've been asking about. All right, How about this? What do I do if I'm invited to a wedding where I'm being asked to happily sing and dance and celebrate with a friend of mine who I love dearly who is giving themselves publicly and permanently to a homosexual relationship. Is that something that I go to and I celebrate? What do I do? What's the underlying question? It's a very similar one. What is sexual identity? What does it mean to be a human in a body with sexual urges, sexual organs? That's the doctrine of man issue. All right, number four, Matt, my husband has abandoned me. Financially, emotionally, physically, he's gone. What do I do? And you got to help me understand this doctrine of, of federal headship, because if it's true, and this happens all the time, doesn't that mean that women are perpetually put in the hands of male ineptitude, or worse, male tyranny? And what's the underlying question? What's a man? What's a woman? What's a marriage? That's a doctrine of man question that you've asked. Okay, how about this one? This was right down here at Liberty Bell. Bisexual attraction has always just come naturally to me. Why would God allow someone to have that orientation but then command them that the same-sex practice is sinful. That feels cruel. Underneath that is the question, again, of our identity, our bodies, our sexuality. It's a doctrine of man question that I was asked right at Liberty Bell. Or this one this week, number six. Marathon bombing verdict came down. You saw that? Pastor Matt. If all of human life is of such great value, you keep saying that, wouldn't it be inhumane, sinful, to execute someone like Jokar Tsarnaev? Or is capital punishment exempt from that? How do these things fit together? What's underneath that? What is the value of human life? What do you do with someone who takes human life? What is that? That's a doctrine of man issue. Okay, I could keep going until 4 o'clock in the afternoon because you've asked and this is your world, right? Women in combat, abortion on demand, the age of sexual consent being lowered to 12 in Sweden, the cancer patient, the young woman in California who committed suicide rather than deal with her illness. I know we saw that one. All of American culture, all of it is asking and also aggressively, dogmatically answering these kinds of questions. And so it makes no sense for Jesus' church to sit on the sidelines and not talk about these things together, especially when Scripture speaks so decisively and helpfully to them. In other words, we're doing this now because there is a pressing need for you, for me for those we are sent to, that we do this now. All right, so that's the what are we doing, and that's the why we are doing it. Now let's talk about the how. How do we do this? It's very scary. Let me give you three T's in this about how we're going to approach this. So one is technique. So this is simple. We're we're an evangelical, gospel-centered, Bible-loving church. That means we come to Scripture, The words of Scripture. We allow Scripture to unpack for us doctrine. What does the Scripture say and mean? What is true according to God's words? And then we move to implications or practice. Okay, so what does this mean in us living out our lives? This is basically the flow of our entire church life at every level. And this is how we preach. What has God said? How do we understand those words? And what are the implications of those words? So that will be our technique, but I don't need to press deep on that with you. I do want to talk to you about tone, and I need you to hold your preachers, me first, accountable for the things that we'll talk about right now, because this is a very explosive doctrine. You can already tell by the quiet in the room. So two ideas here, but we have to keep them in tension. So as we think of tone in our ministry together, tone in addressing what God's Word says to us, we want to be both direct and inviting. As we've worked through the book of Acts, I think we've seen this over and over and over again. The apostolic gospel was both uh, a warning about sin, about rejecting the grace of God in Christ, but also a welcome to say, so come on in and receive the grace of Christ. Both of these were going on. Now, I think that you know that in our world right now, right, half the churches in our city for sure, they say when it comes to speaking on the doctrine of man, the only thing you are allowed to do is to land on the right-hand side of there. That's it. It's not called inviting and welcome. It's called open and affirming. You've probably heard those words put together. In other words, you need to be open to and affirming of Any and every expression, definition, conviction, practice on the doctrine of man that walks through the back doors of your church community. So we fear God too much. And hear this part. We love people too much to only affirm whatever we've come up with. It doesn't help anyone in a congregation or in a city if Christian pastors of all people, and I know it's a heavy job, but if them of all people will not just stand up straight, humble, but straight in their pulpits and say, this is what God says, and it's true, and it's good, and it's beautiful. Can I direct might sound easy, and I'm like 6'3", and loud, and dynamic, so you might be go, oh, that's easy to do, but confession here with you easily. I am more scared about the next 11 weeks in the life of our church and our pulpit than I have been ever. And I've been doing this and serving you for a while. It's very, very tempting on these hotly contested issues. It's very, very tempting, very tempting when the world that I live in insists that everything that God says is true and good and beautiful, is exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong on every point. And especially on things that are so personal, I mean, is there anything more personal than the doctrine of man, and so emotional to either not speak at all, so we're jumping off that cliff with you today, or to stutter, to equivocate to apologize. So we're not going to do that. I was really helped this week with the words of Peter. He says to Jesus' church, to the community, whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God in order that God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. So that verse has become an anchor for me. Oracles there means words, divine words. It shows up four times in the New Testament, Hebrews, Romans, Acts, and Peter. Each time it's talking about doctrinal words or revealed truth or things that God has lovingly communicated to his people. And Peter says, hey, if that is your role, if that is your role, if the church has affirmed that Jesus has called you to that role in serving them, speak. Stand up straight and speak to the glory of God and for the good of his people. Don't stutter, don't hesitate, don't apologize, just speak. Okay, so we're going to do that. We're just going for humbly, clear, and direct. But we are also going for inviting In other words, speaking the truth in a way that communicates to all of us wherever we might be on the doctrine of man. Remember, it's a broad crowd, right? Some of us are teenagers and we're just thinking through these things for the first time. Some of us have never been in a church setting at all. This whole thing is weird. Some of us have loved God's word for a long time. That all of us are welcome and wanted by Jesus. I know, you know, that there are people in our culture who just despise the Christian gospel and don't even let you finish a sentence in a conversation about the doctrine of man without wild accusations. Fine. But you do understand that most of the people that we are sent to uh, are just defaulting to living out of the only doctrine that they've ever heard or seen before. And so what they need is just someone to come and patiently and lovingly and welcomely, welcomingly teach them the, the other side of these things, God's side. So this is why our church exists, right? What's the big why of Seven Mile Road? Why in the world give all the effort and the money and the energy and the time to starting a church when there's already churches that exist? Seven Mile Road exists because there are not enough gospel-centered and and theologically orthodox and culturally engaging churches where un-gospel people can come and clearly hear and clearly see in your lives what it looks like to embrace sound doctrine. They need that desperately from me and from you so that they have a safe place to rethink their lives in the light of the gospel. The last thing that that person needs is you or me mistaking direct for attitude, taunting, attacking, bomb dropping. Now that creeps up in the heart of any preacher this tendency to preach the gospel but not really care if anyone actually believes it or not, to just be like, hey, here's gospel truth. Take it or leave it, you loser, because I said it. That was my job. That's sub-Christian preaching. Instead, we're supposed to go, hey, here's gospel truth, and I would do anything to see you take it and find life in these words. It's very easy to preach the doctrine of man with an attitude. I have seen it done. I watched some guy screaming and yelling about how he would not sit down to go to the bathroom when he was in Germany. Trying to make a point about the doctrine of man, yelling and screaming and red faced. And just in hearing the approach, I was like, okay, that's direct, but that is not inviting. I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to. He wants grace and truth pulled together so direct yes but not combative resolved sure but not belligerent calling all of us deeper into repentance and faith and joy in jesus that's our tone you are allowed to catch up with me don't email me call me if you think that our tone is spiraling away from either direct or away from inviting. Okay, and then last one on the how. How are we going to do this? That's the technique and the tone and now the text. So where do we even begin to think on this stuff? Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We're going to ground our series in the words of Genesis 1 and 2 in the spring and then the words of Genesis 3 in the summer. This is the place where the creative intentions of God for you as men and you as women are put on their most beautiful display. Since this is a doctrinal series, we'll be all over the Bible, but that is because everything else in your Bible echoes, is propelled from what God was intending to do with us in the beginning. So Genesis 1 and 2 are the words of God, inspired, inspired, true in all that they say. They are the first and the final authority in our life and practice. But we're also doing this because Genesis 1 and 2 are pre-sin, pre-sin. All right, so let's think about that for a second. In other words, if you really want to know what God was intending for us before we mucked it up so badly by our sin, if you really want to know what it is that the Spirit is pulling us back to for God's glory and our joy... Genesis 1 and 2 paint a simple, beautiful picture of that. That's where we would go. All right, I'm breaking my rule, but two basketball analogies in a row. If someone wanted to know, Cruz, tell me what beautiful basketball done right looks like. Where would you take them? Would you take them to my backyard when we lower the rim down to six feet and Timmy and Wesley and Axel and Callie are all just whipping stuff at the rim? No. Would you take them to the Y with me on Wednesday nights for over 30 men's pickup basketball? I mean, even if Steven shows up, it's still terrible basketball, terrible. Would you take them to the 2015 Knicks? No. Where would you take them? you take them to the 86 celtics unfortunately you take them to the 87 lakers but you wouldn't you take them to the 96 bulls that is what basketball looks like when it's played right that's what genesis 1 and 2 are for us this is what god intended when he created us and that takes us to the third reason that we're doing genesis 1 and 2 as our text This is where Jesus went. When Jesus was asked questions about the doctrine of man, where did he immediately, instinctively race to in his answers? Remember what he was asked about, the meaning of marriage and the propriety of divorce? What was Jesus' instinctive reaction in that conversation? He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, And said, this is why a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Where is Jesus getting all those words from? Where did he race to with the question about the doctrine of man? That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, literally, the words. Haven't you read what God intended? That's how Jesus ran, that's how Jesus' apostles after him ran, of course, because this was how Jesus ran. He loved these words. He found permanent, beautiful, holding truth in these words, and that's where we want to be together as a church. So that's the what and the why and the how of what we're going to do for the next few months together. Alright, so whatever time I have left, we're going to do the first four ver- words of the text. Now when I get to pray for you if you're still here. You're still here. Alright, let's pray. Father, thanks for giving us each other. Thanks for your words. Oh man, words are bantered around this world, bantered around this world, Father, just endlessly. But there's something different about these words. Eternally true inspired by you, helpful to us. Give us a love for them. Give us humility to wrestle with them. Give us grace to believe them. I long for you to do that. I long for you to do that for my sons and my daughters and for many in this place that you've called us to. We are relying on your spirit. There's no gimmicks here. We're dead without you. So I pray that you would show up in power. Hear my prayer for that and answer. Amen. Okay, reset your energy. Here we go. Genesis 1, focusing in on the doctrine of man. And where does the text begin? Surprise, surprise. It does not begin with man. It does not begin with woman. It begins with God. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, these are the first four words of all of God's words to us. In the beginning, God. And immediately, we are offended. Immediately, we are offended. Our story, our reality, our existence, our identity, our sexuality does not begin with us. It begins with God. So please don't miss this. It does not say that in the beginning, chaos, or in the beginning, matter, in the beginning, protons, neutrons, and electrons, in the beginning, quarks, those are even smaller than electrons. We found those. It does not say in the beginning, outer space, or aliens, or other intelligent beings. I love those movies too, but that's not where this starts. It does not say, in the beginning, fate, in the beginning, chance, in the beginning, the wild, wild luck of evolution. It does not say, in the beginning, progress, or in the beginning, the environment, or in the beginning, money, or in the beginning, Plato, or Aristotle, or Socrates, or Stephen Hawking, or Albert Einstein, or Carl Sagan, or Steve Jobs, or... Muhammad or Confucius or Vishnu or Buddha or Whoopi Goldberg or Tom Brady or Rob Gronkowski or Deepak Chopra. And it does not say, in the beginning, you. Or in the beginning, me. In the beginning, God. Can the scriptures give us some fleeting glances into what was before this beginning? Uh, How do I explain this? So you know how cheap I am, and I never spend my own money on coffee or fruity drinks, unless someone gives me a gift card. Last summer it was about 147 degrees out, and uh, the AC on my car was like iffy. You know those days, and I had this Dunkin' Donuts gift card, and I was driving by the Dunkin' Donuts in Stoneham, so I ran in and I said to the lady, "Give me the biggest, coldest, fruitiest drink that you have." She hands me this keg of strawberry culotta. Have you seen the size of those things? And, I don't know if you know this, she gave me this straw that was about this, you know what I mean, like a bamboo stick. I jammed it in that thing, and I sucked down half of that culotta between the front door of the store and the, the front door of my Ford Taurus. What happened next? Yeah, you know that thing, like right here, frontal lobe, low, both sides just frozen out, Oh, I was counting it like 42, 43, please, Jesus, help me, 44, 60 seconds, it'll go away. Brain freeze. That's what happened when, What happens when the human, brain, the human brain attempts to think about God existing eternally before there was not just space, but even like such a thing as time. But here's what we know. Before there was space, before there was time, before there was men, before there was women, before there was earth, there was God. Father, Son, and Spirit, they lived together in an infinitely perfect relationship of mutual love and joy, conversation, community, togetherness, selflessness, holiness, God. And it was out of the overflow of all of that Trinitarian awesomeness that time begins and creation begins. Systematic theology says three things about God's creation. It was done out of nothing. Ex nihilo or nihilo is the cool words for that, meaning there wasn't something that God mushed together and started. There was nothing but God. The creation came into being, By his word, divine fiat is what we call that. He just said it. We read that this morning. Let there be light and there was light. And every Bible verse about creation says it's for his glory. It's to show off his glory. It's to make known his glory. These three things together reveal a lot of stuff about God. His power, man, his wisdom. We could do a whole series on that. But the only one I want to press with you is it shows us, it reveals to us his authority. All things were created by him and from him and for him. This means that God has ownership rights over all creation. We talk about that in the terms of the creator creature distinction there is God, then there's this line then there is everything and everyone else. He is before and beneath and behind and above all of it. He has the copyright, you know what that is? On all of it. He is the potter and every single atom in the universe, every man and every woman is clay in his hands. He is the playwright and we are all on the stage in his theater and he gets to write our script. And so the very first big idea on the doctrine of man is not about man, it's about God, and here it is. You are not the maker of or the measure of all things, God is. You are not the maker of or the measure of all things, God is. Now, I know if you're like me, right, postmodern, 41-year-old American citizen, that is very hard to receive, It's actually been hard for everyone who's ever lived to receive this truth. Here's a quote from a pastor in the 1500s talking about the people in his culture. He said this, It is with the knowledge of God that we must begin, but we would prefer to never have heard of him. It is with the knowledge of God that we must begin, but we prefer to never have heard of him. In other words, what? How would you prefer the Bible begins? Come on, it's easy. In the beginning, man. In the beginning, woman. In the beginning, right here. We would love to be self-existent and self-sufficient and be rid of God and his authority and his holiness. But the scripture begins by saying, you are not pre-existent, you are not self-sufficient, You are not the beginning and the end of all things. You are not God. So, that doctrine is unbelievably difficult for a generation of Bostonians who have been raised on the gospel of self esteem. Remember that throughout grammar school? We've been raised on the gospel of self esteem. We assume from kindergarten that life is a big story, and who's the star? Who's at the center? Who is this thing about? Who is the hero? Who is the heroine? You are. You are the point. So you know who we are like? We are like that couple who is getting married like within six to 12 months. Have you been around that couple before? So in my gospel community, we've got one of those, and I can rag on them right now because they're not here. (laughs) How annoying is that couple right there, six to 12 months out from their wedding? It's like all of earth, all the financial markets, literally the, 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 the uh, what do you call it, meteorology, the atmosphere, okay, the clouds and the temperature, all of it exists to make sure of one thing, that the day that they get married goes perfect. They will not talk with you about anything but themselves and their wedding, right? The DJ, the music, the vibe. The meet location, the venue, we're tasting the food, the talks, the tails, no tails, bow tie, no bow tie, double vested, single vested, I got my dress. Literally scheduling tanning appointments so that they nail the perfect complexion on the day of the wedding. Is that not terribly annoying? Now I've been there, so now I look back and I say, You loser, wow, why didn't someone slap you upside the head? I did go tanning in Winthrop once. 24 7. All, not just their life, but your life and this world is about them, okay? And we laugh about that. If you're honest with me, that is a microcosm of the way that you approach your life. So the first thing that I need today is I need you to allow those words, the words of scripture that drive to those words, to begin to shake you free of that disease and of that Delusion. You will never understand who you are until you begin to think huge thoughts about God and small thoughts about yourself. Psalm 100, we read that to begin the service. It's perfect. Memorize it. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. I mean, does this not address perfectly the atheistic evolution that we love in our day, we say what? God didn't make us. We got it done ourselves. It took a while, depending on your math, millions, cabillions of years, but we did it. We fought out of the soup. We grew lungs while we had gills. Uh, Pulled that off. Then moved through the monkey stage, and now look. We got it done. God didn't make us. We made ourselves. What does the Bible say? No. God is the fountain and the origin of all things, and everything depends on him, and everything is founded on and sustained by his power. And so, authority, what he says, goes. What God says, goes. You know, I could stop right there with that doctrinal truth, but that could lead you to a place where you go, all right, if I accept this to be true and God is like all-powerful and all-creator and has the copyright and all authority is his, then I guess I just have to grin and bear whatever he tells me is true about myself as a man or as a woman. That would leave something huge unsaid if we stopped there. This truth, you are not the maker of or the measure of all things God is, does not address whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just states it, but it doesn't address whether it's good or it's bad. Because this could go either way, right? Has anybody ever been under a lousy authority? A bad father? A bad boss, a bad coach, a bad older sister. That could be wicked. In my sophomore year in high school, I played basketball, had the best coach I have ever had in my life, Angelo Fantasia, perfect East Boston name for a coach. He was a dream as a coach. He was a perfect authority. Then in the spring, I played baseball. I don't know where they dragged this bum in from, but he was the worst baseball coach imaginable, clueless. Even as a 15-year-old, that shift of gears was so hard for me. I loved submitting to the authority of Angelo Fantasia. I would dive on glass for a rebound for that man. I wanted to quit the baseball team halfway through partly because it was 37 degrees and windy and wet, and partly because this authority was was incompetent. You feel that? Authority could be incompetent. Some of you know this. Authority could be evil and capricious. This doctrine could be true, and God could just exercise raw authority on your head, and you just have to grin and bear it or else. So here's the second awesome thing that I get to say to you around this doctrine and this is it. This God, this Father and Son and Spirit is the most brilliant, most wise, most loving, most good being in the universe. Say it like this. God is the maker of and the measure of all things. So blow you away. And He is infinitely good, infinitely good. Now that's the testimony of all Scripture. We won't run through it, but just start reading your Bible and you will see it. We read it to begin the service. Not only is it He who has made us and not we ourselves, but then what? He is good. Because God is infinitely good, what do we know about His creation? What do we know about everything we read in Genesis 1 and 2? It, too, is good. Now, you can't miss that in the text if we wanted to read through it. What's the refrain that we would hear at the end of each season of creation, each day of creation, each segment? What's the refrain that comes at the end? I read the first one before. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. How many times? Seven times good, 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 good. And then what was the last one? Here, I'll give you this one up on the screen. God saw that, everything that he had made. Does that include the male body? Does that include the female body? Does that include that sun that is a trillion times brighter than our sun? Serious, I wasn't making that up with the kids. Does that include... Everything in the creation narrative. God saw that everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Oh, you have to feel this with me if there's going to be joy here. God did not make mistakes in creation. God did not write some evil into creation just to mess with you. God did not go, oh, I would have done that differently. I need a restart. God is infinitely good, and in his creating, he created and said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And the summary statement, very good. If you put these two truths together, the first is the creative authority of God, and the second is the infinite goodness of God, here's what you get, and this is the big idea that we are running into this series with. You'll hear it over and over again. If those two things are true... The creative authority of God for his glory and the infinite goodness of God. Here's our thesis statement for everything about the doctrine of man. God's highest glory and your deepest joy. They intersect. They come together when we say yes to who he made us to be. God's highest glory and our deepest joy come together intersect when we say okay yes to who he made us to be. Now, we're going to unpack who he made us to be for the next couple of months together. But as you can see, where does this all begin? It all begins with what we call faith, with faith, with a robust confession of faith. I am not God, but I am loved by God, and He intends good for me, so who does He say I am? Because I'm in. I'm in. If we don't begin this series and your entire life right here on this confession of faith, we're dead. It's over. And the goodness of God is what sets us free to actually make this confession with joy. Amen. The goodness of God, the goodness of our Father, the goodness of our Savior. It's like a life raft that we cling to in navigating the stormy waters of the doctrine of man because they're stormy. That's where we started today, stormy. God has intentions for me. They are good and beautiful and true, and I'm in. So for the teenager who is struggling with Sexual identity questions, we've all been there. This confession of faith is life. There is life in these words. For the husband whose heart has grown cold toward his wife and is like, I just, I'm not interested in loving or leading this woman for another five minutes, there is life in these words. For the woman who has been betrayed by a husband, either his ineptitude or his evil. There is life in these words. For the cancer patient who is struggling to breathe, there is life in these words. For the family of five who just found out they're having another baby, there is life in these words. For every man and every woman and every one of us, there is life in these words. And so my question as we begin is, Are you there? Are you there? In one of our Kalos track sessions, Jen, thanks for sharing with us about those. We were working on God's intentions for femininity. It's a beautiful night. I wish you could all be there. I learned so much just sitting and listening to these godly women work through the scripture on these things. And about two-thirds of the way through, one of, one of the women said, I need to believe that Christ gets to define me. I need to believe that Christ gets to define me. Whew. So those are explosive words in our day, but those are beautiful words. And the best part for me was that she did not say them like hesitantly or like frustratingly or grin and bear it in, if I can make that an adverb she didn't even say them sarcastically or like condescendingly she said them with faith with gospel faith Okay, some of you have not gotten there yet we're inviting you to that place with us some of you are still not sure that you want to really entrust your life your body your joy to the God of the gospel We're not perfect at it at all, but we're inviting you to join us in submitting to the authority of God, leaning into the goodness of God, and finding that our deepest joy is at that place where we say we're in. That's what we're going to go for. Will you be praying for your pastors? Will you be praying for one another? Will you be letting Jesus race you to joy in what he has given us in his word. All right, let's pray together. Father, thanks for this family. Thanks for your love for us. We are weak in faith. And so I pray that you would help our unbelief. I pray for whoever it is that you may be connecting us to in these cities in these months that the grace of Jesus Christ would explode in their hearts that the clearest testimony at the end of this preaching series would be from someone who had been saying no to who they were made to be and is now saying with tears, with joy, yes, we rely on the power of your Spirit to conform us to the image of your Son. So sweep through this church, I pray, with spiritual power and grace. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to believe the words of God and the gospel of God to be true and good and beautiful. Visit us in this season, I pray. Amen. Amen.